0: Philippians 2 12 and 13 could change the way that you look at your will and your obedience. I would love if we all left here this morning wanting to work harder than ever to live for God and and more confident than ever that living for God is entirely possible for us. Let me begin by asking you some tough questions that hopefully prepare you to receive these verses. So be honest with yourself. Do you struggle to want to obey God? Do you find it hard to actually obey God? Are you uneasy with how little you desire God and obedience? Do you ever find yourself knowing what God wants you to do but having little to no motivation to actually do what God wants you to do. Well, if your honest answer is yes to any of those, you're, and you're uneasy about those yes, that yes, or those yeses, then this, this verse, this section, these, these two verses from Philippians can help you. They're inspiring. And hopefully, they redirect your focus From your own inability and deficiency to God's ability and sufficiency. Basically, I want this text to get your eyes off of what you can't do and onto what God can do in you. Obeying God is strenuous, obeying God is demanding, and oftentimes. You may think that you need, you need to muster up the desire, to muster up the strength to obey God on your own, but that thinking will frustrate and discourage you because your success in obeying God is not about you working harder, but about you trusting that the Holy Spirit will work obedience in you more and more. It comes down to trust and not self-discipline. Verse 12 starts out, Therefore, which is awesome. Little words can be so awesome. It is an awesome word because what Paul is about to say is fixed to what he has just said about Jesus Christ in the preceding verses. He had talked about the supremacy and lordship of Christ. So Paul's command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is secured to the supremacy and lordship of Christ. Living the the Christian life cannot be disconnected from the person and ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Our desire for God and desire for obedience and ability to obey originate from the person and work of Christ and our union with him. God is calling you to work out your salvation. God is calling you to work out your salvation. Paul was like a gentle father instructing his beloved children because he cared for them so deeply and he wanted the best for them. My beloved, he says. And and that's the same word that God used of his son, Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. Paul's affection. First, Paul's affection. You can sense Paul's deep affection for the Philippians. He he had said, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So you will better understand this letter if you can feel the affection of Paul coming through. Ultimately, the affection of Christ coming through. Every command in Philippians overflows from deep affection. Second, Paul's affirmation. Constructive criticism, if you think about this, um, is best received when it is inspired by love and affection. Imagine a spiritual mentor affirming you like this. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, You see, Paul affirmed the Philippians' pattern of faithful obedience to God. They were already working out their salvation, and he was inspiring them to do it more and more and more. Third, Paul's accountability. Paul mentioned their obedience in his presence, so at one point he had watched The Philippians obey God, but now he was in prison in another city, and he couldn't be with them, and so he challenged them in his absence to obey God even more. He was their church-planting pastor. He had gotten the thing started, and maybe they were too dependent upon him actually being there with them on his presence, and not enough on the Holy Spirit. Their dependency absolutely had to have been on the Holy Spirit, not on Paul. Like parents training their children to obey God when they're not around, if you know what I'm saying, Paul was training the Philippians to obey God when he was not around, when he was not with them. They needed to remain strong. They needed to be united. They needed to work out their salvation together. And as helpful as Paul was... They needed a certain independence from him in their obedience. Fourth, this was Paul's command, or you could say Paul's advice. Work out your own salvation. Now, let's unpack that. That is a huge statement, so we're going to unpack that. It's very important. God calls every single Christian to work out their salvation. Now, what does Paul mean? Well, here is what Paul does not mean. He does not mean work for your, your own salvation. Salvation cannot be merited. If salvation is accomplished by Christ's work plus our work, the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross is lost and the end result is idolatry and false religion, which is not good news. Paul can't mean work for your salvation because he said in Philippians 1.28 that salvation was from God. He said in Ephesians 2, 8-10, listen closely. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation along with every means God used to accomplish salvation for us and to dispense salvation to us is altogether grace. Any view of salvation that emphasizes in any way what we have freely done apart from God is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul cannot mean work for your salvation. So what does Paul mean? Let me summarize it first and then break it down. God graciously gave us salvation through Christ alone. Therefore, because we now possess salvation, we must live out the effects of salvation or work out what Christ has already accomplished for us. Let me break that down. First, understand what Paul means by salvation. Paul had just mentioned the cross in verse 8, so salvation logically refers to Christ dying on a cross to save us from sin and God's judgment and to give us eternal life. Well, How does someone work that out? Well, maybe this illustration will help. You contract a terminal disease which causes severe fevers, tremors, and paralysis. You have no hope of recovery until you hear of an injection that guarantees full recovery. Healing will be a process. The effects will gradually reduce until they're gone, but once you receive the the injection, you're essentially cured. It just has to work itself out through your system so you get the shot. And as the months pass, pass, the fevers decrease. The tremors grow infrequent. The paralysis wanes and more and more feeling returns to your extremities. Your quality of life improves. You experience significant improvement and people see the process and see, people see the progress You are living out what the medication is working in you, and the improved health of your body is being caused by two things. First, you have received the medication. And secondly, it's working itself out in you. If the fevers continue... If the tremors persist, if the paralysis remains, and you're as sick as you were the day you received the injection, one of two things is true. Number one, the medication doesn't work for you. Or number two, you never really received the injection. Now make the connection with salvation from verse 12. When God saves you, you receive salvation. Salvation will be worked out in your life. Listen to this. The evidence of your reception of salvation is your application of salvation. That's an important line. When there is no process, when there is no progress in working out your salvation, one of two things is true. Number one, salvation doesn't work. Number two, salvation was never received. We can rule out, number one, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and God's sovereign and saving grace applied is always effective. God accomplishes all that he sets out to do because he has no rival, and nothing, nothing can thwart his divine purposes. And if at that point you say, I don't know if I agree with you, just think if something can thwart the purposes of an almighty and sovereign God, that thing is then sovereign at that point, and we lose God. The only explanation left for why a person does not work out their salvation is that they have never truly received salvation. The evidence of your reception of salvation is your application of salvation. Maybe this illustration will help. God gives a young and poor newlywed couple a massive, beautiful countryside mansion on considerable acreage. He places them inside it, and now they must explore their property, grow their family in it, and simply enjoy all that God has given them. As they discover new rooms in their mansion, and as they discover the far reaches of their property, and the fields, and the fruit trees, and all that is on the land, they begin to enjoy it, and they begin to use it as God intends them to. As they discover more, they use more to enhance their lifestyle and happiness." Their countryside mansion and scenic land seems endless, as does their potential for better living and more happiness. They are living in what God has built for them and living out their new identity as homeowners. They, they have done absolutely nothing, nothing except receive and live in and enjoy the home God gave them, all they are really doing is living out their new God-given identity as homeowners. When Paul says, work out your salvation, I take him to mean that because we have received salvation from God, we are to live out all the implications of salvation in our everyday life. You see, I'm, I'm seeing a connection in verse 12 between obedience and working out your own salvation. It goes like this. As you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. Uh, working out their salvation appears to be the Philippians' continuation of obedience. Now, application. Application. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God ushered us from death into life. Christ is now alive in us. By faith, our utter sinfulness and cumulative sinful record was thrown onto Christ and nailed to the cross. Our sin debt was canceled. At the same time, all of Christ's righteousness was credited to us as if it was our righteousness. Because of Christ's work for us, God now considers us perfectly righteous. As if Christ's merits were our merits. We, of course, still sin. Everybody knows that, but because of our union with Christ, God considers us, God counts us, God deems us righteous in his sight. Sin no longer defines us. Now our union with Christ is our new identity. We are now holy, righteous, forgiven, pure, redeemed, saved. We are now God's children. And we now belong to Christ. It cannot be reversed because the paperwork has been done in Christ. We are now what we will be forever, children of God. Paul's command to work out our salvation is a command to live out the salvation that we have been given and to live out what salvation has made us. Isn't that what Paul is getting at? Predestination is part of your salvation. How do you work that out? Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You work out your predestination when you live more and more like Jesus'. When you conform more and more to Christ, that is the intent of predestination. Faith is part of your salvation. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You work out faith after the old you, after the old you is crucified with Christ, and after Christ begins to live in you. After he loves you and after he gives himself for you, then you live by faith in him. Adoption is part of your salvation. How do you work that out? Galatians 4, 4-7 says, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's awesome. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You work out adoption after being redeemed, after legally becoming a child of God, after receiving the Spirit of Christ, after addressing God as Abba, Father. You work out your adoption when you live as a son or a daughter of God and not as a slave of sin. You are not a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. When I left, this isn't in the notes. Mom, this is for you. When I was leaving as a teenager, mom would say, remember whose you are. Because it is our identity that drives how we live out. Thanks, mom. Still with me. And we could do this same thing with all the different aspects of our salvation, but I hope you see the point So then, it is completely insane, insane, unheard, unthinkable, stupid, foolish for someone to think they have received salvation if they are not currently working it out. Dr. William Hendrickson called it continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. Continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. It is grueling work to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it is good work, and it is satisfying work, and it is joyful work. 2 Peter 1.10 might help you better understand. Verse 12, Peter says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never Now, it would be helpful if we read right before that, Peter had mentioned several uh, qualities in verses 5 through 7, including faith, uh, self-control, godliness, love. In other words, the way to confirm that God has called you, that God has elected you, or that God has, you could say, saved you, is to put forth strenuous effort to trust Christ. To control your body, to obey God's commands, and to love God and others. I think working out your salvation is equivalent to striving to confirm your salvation through hard-fought, persistent obedience to God. God is calling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling can be really good. I had the, uh, the opportunity to enjoy the Crider Farms tour. And, and I'm terrified of cows. And it still was fun. I'm kidding. I'm not terrified of cows. <laughs> cows are awesome. Our family loves cows. I went to the top of the silo observation tower. And in the floor of this tower, there are glass plates. And you can step out on those glass plates and look down 100 feet. Now, I wanted to step On those glass things, but when I stepped, something happened in my legs. Fear. Fear happened in my legs. But I wanted to step on the glass. And I and I kept stepping on the glass. I had a nice platform of concrete that I can't see through, but I wanted to go on that glass and feel that little rip in my leg. It was a rush. We can fear, we can tremble, we can enjoy something all at the same time. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fearing God and trembling, His glory coincide with rejoicing in God. As we serve Him with fear and trembling, we rejoice in Him. As we serve Him with fear and trembling and rejoice in Him, we are thrilled By him. Now, why are fear and trembling necessary when working out your salvation? Why would God even put that in there? Consider Jesus Christ from verses 6 through 11. He has supremacy. It would do many Christians well to fear Christ more and tremble at his supremacy rather than patronizing him as their homeboy. As we work out our salvation, we must keep in mind who saved us and how he saved us. His person commands all. His person commands reverence. His person commands respect. Christ living in you is a terrifying thing and a glorious thing and a humbling thing. Okay, now let's shift gears a little bit and see how this has worked out. How do we do this? How is this done? How can you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Verse 13 can give you hope. Verse 13 can give you confidence. Verse 13 can give you expectation, all of which you desperately need. It is so thoroughly theological and yet so Powerfully practical. Verse 13 is saturated with the sovereignty of God. Working out your salvation, my friends, saints, dear saints, dear beloved, dear loved ones, it is continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. And the task of working out your salvation, when you look at it, may seem completely daunting. How am I ever going to do that? But you have to keep reading from verse 12 right into verse 13 to to get the hope of it, to get the guarantee of it. Listen to verses 12 through 13 again and I want you to pay close attention for one little word, the word for. That little conjunction in verse 13 explains the cause of our working. The cause of our working. It is the gateway to our ability to work. Just listen. Therefore, my beloved As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, for, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's emphasis is a long shot from human willpower. His emphasis is the sovereign and effectual power and grace of God. Of course Paul encourages human responsibility. None of what he says discounts human responsibility and the will and the work, but he unquestionably punctuates God's work in us, not our autonomous work disconnected from God. And until you get that in your gut, and I mean deeply entrenched This theology in your gut, you will focus on yourself. You'll focus on yourself. You'll bear the immense burden of work. And you will wear yourself out by your own self-dependency. Quite frankly, you and I cannot handle the responsibility or the rigors of working out our salvation on our own. Can't handle it. We'll shut down. And please listen closely. There are people who moderate the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, which creates unbearable burdens. The sovereignty of God in salvation promises hope, it promises freedom, it promises the anticipation that God will work in the toughest of circumstances. So when your desire for God and obedience is not what it ought to be, the answer is not you trying harder, striving just a little bit more. Today I'm going to get it. But it's rather the spectacular sovereign grace of God at work in you. It's God's work. The doctrines of God's sovereign grace are what you need to find greater desire and ambition and joy in slogging out your salvation. Paul didn't write verses 12 and 13 to spark up some uh, theological debate about free will and God's sovereignty. His purpose was to give hope. His purpose was to give confidence. His purpose was to give expectation to these dear people that God could work the impossible in the human heart. God alone can increase desire for God. Check out Psalm 37 verse 4 sometime on that. God had not called the Philippians to do anything that he was not already very graciously working out in them. A great way to completely discourage yourself, to completely go in the dumps, is to believe that God has accomplished salvation for you and given it to you freely, but now it's up to you to work it out on your own strength. Man, oh days, that is a quick road down don't live under that burden. Don't live under that weight. Theologian Dr. Jenis, uh, Dennis Johnson summarized how burdensome that, that self-determined thinking is for us, that we've got to handle sanctification on our own. And he wrote a nice long quote, and I printed it in your, your uh, bulletin so that you could follow along, so please listen carefully. This is heady stuff, but it is so, so telling and helpful Dr. Dennis Johnson writes the following, how then should this imperative, which simply means command, about our work be reconciled with the gospel indicative, which means truth, of Christ's work? How do these two things work? He says, one approach would be to say that believers are justified, declared right with God by grace alone, through trust in Jesus' obedience and sacrifice alone, but that our transformation to become more like Jesus, sanctification, largely depends on our own self-discipline and struggle to suppress evil desires and cultivate pure and loving habits of the heart. In short, the idea is that justification is up to Jesus, but sanctification is up to us. Yet this division of labor quickly robs Christians of joy and hope. As our first burst of joy at conversion recedes into the distant past as a hazy memory, our daily experience becomes a frustrating struggle to achieve whatever degree of obedience might, we hope, win the Father's smile. And we ride a roller coaster between heights of self satisfaction over moral victories and valleys of self condemnation over failures. That blows my mind. That's so telling. Don't we do that? We believe that God saved us, but then we look to ourselves to keep ourselves saved. We pile all the pressure and all the responsibility on ourselves to fight sin, to avoid this, to do that, to do the right thing, to live out the Bible. We grind our teeth. We strain on our own to work it out by the strength of our own self-discipline. And my friends, that is so thoroughly tiring. You don't need it, and neither do I. You will be tired. The Christian life will not be joyful for you. It'll all be about gutting it out, strain a little harder, I gotta do this, pump myself up for today, because I know I'm gonna get kicked around. It's tiring because we expect our ability to be enough when it is only God's ability that is enough in us. With much frustration, we try very, very hard to please God. And in the process, we miss this amazing reality that God is already pleased with you in Christ. (laughs) And that he will work in us to work out our salvation. He will do it. He will show up. He will provide for you. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so is sanctification That little phrase, for it is God who works in you, assassinates pride in the heart because whatever we need to do, only God can do. And if we're ever going to do it, God must work it in us. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, He will. He will. What does God work in us? First, to will. The Greek word is fellow. It can mean to decide to do something, to desire to do something. And to delight to do something. And this may surprise you, but any desire that you have for God and for obedience has been put in you by God. You are willing, you are desiring because God is working. Yes! This also means that if your desire is non-existent, if your desire is low, if you are just like, I'm apathetic, I know it, I feel pathetic, I don't even want to do this stuff. God, not you, is the decisive factor in increasing your desire. So when you know deep down, you study your heart, and you know your desire is way too low for God, it, it, it's, it's almost non-existent. You don't even really desire to obey much. You look at his commands and find them a big burden and not a joy. You need to humble yourself and cry out to God, and you must trust. You must trust Trust that he will work greater desire in you. To trust uh, Christ, faith, believe, trust, whatever word you want to use for that, when you trust Christ, it is to be confident that Christ will increase your desire and will. Do you believe he'll do it? That's what you got to do. That's what faith does. It believes, it has confidence that Christ will show up and give us what we need, If you try to generate this on your own, you will only frustrate yourself and you will discourage yourself. Well, what else does God work in us? Second, God works in us to work. The Greek word is anergeto, and means to do something or to act out something. The word is used twice in verse 13. One, to describe the work we must do and, and to describe the work that God does. When someone works out their salvation, there is no room for them to boast about it, because behind their continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is the work of God. The only reason anyone works out their salvation is because God works in them. Can you see that from verse 13? I'm just trying to pound verse 13. So if you have little to no ambition to obey God, you have to understand what has to happen in you. God has to work. You need to cry out to God for his mercy, grace, and movement to work in you so that you can not only desire him, not only desire to obey him, but actually obey him. And when you do obey him, you're not sitting there patting yourself on the back. You're only giving glory to God because he did it through you. And that fuels your joy. It's just this amazing joy thing that God does inside of us. Dr. Johnson said this, even the desire... To do what is good comes from God. But he also works in the believer to generate actual choices of the good so that the desires result in actions. And as soon as we go there, as soon as I say that, there are people who cry foul because we are somehow tampering with free will. And my question is, what on earth are we supposed to do with verse 13? Is there another angle? Am I missing something? And let me me ask you one question that I think will help you process this whole God's sovereignty, free will thing. Isn't the will enslaved to sin until God makes the will free? I think my theology's rock solid there. I think I'm just thinking like Paul and the Holy Spirit. That'll answer a lot for you. trapped in enslavement to sin is our will, is our desire, is our affection, everything. What part of us does not come under sin? What part of us has not been rescued from sin by God? Please think about that. Verse 13 only advocates the thought that Paul gave us earlier in Philippians 1.6, which goes like this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who began the good work? God. Who will complete the good work? God. Who gets the glory for the good work? God. God, God, God. Maybe a good way to balance Our work and God's work is to say this. We work together with God because God has chosen to work in us. I think that captures it. Anything good that you have ever done has been God at work in you. When you lose battles to sin and you're like, didn't do it that time, you were simply fighting on your own strength and not trusting God. Every struggle you have There is a clear path to victory and has nothing to do with your grit and nothing to do with your willpower. Victory has everything to do with trusting God to work in your work. That's the straightest path to fervent and happy obedience. Trusting Christ to do it In you is the nature of saving faith. He saved you so you could say, yes, I know Christ will show up and do this in me. He's going to show up on Wednesday. He's going to show up on Thursday. He's going to be faithful three years from now and until the end. Consider Hebrews 13, 20, and 21, which talks about God equipping his people with everything good that they may do his will, working in them that which is pleasing in his sight. This is not an isolated example in Philippians. Pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Why does he get glory? Because he's doing it. Consider... Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, who said, But by grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder. I, I, Paul, worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Saints, don't ever simply trust that Christ Has saved you. Also, trust that Christ is saving you. Trust that He will work in you greater desire for God, a greater desire for obedience, a greater ability to obey. If God is your greatest treasure, then work out your salvation for His good pleasure. I'm not a, that's, you know, that's not great, but it rhymes. God is pleased and glorified when his work is seen in your work and rejoiced in. Saints, your effort is not enough, but God's effort is more than enough. You have everything you need in Christ to work out your salvation with fear and trembling to the pleasure of God. So with gratitude and with greatness, work it out. Work it out. Having problems lying? Your willpower... To never lie again is not enough. Trust that God will work the desire for truth in you and the ability to tell the truth. Having problems lusting, your willpower to never look at porn again, never look at a sexually explicit movie again, is not enough. Trust that God will work the desire for sexual purity in you and the ability to control your eyes and heart and to live a chaste life. Having problems desiring God? Your willpower to conjure up more joy in God is not enough. Trust that God will work in you greater desire for him and that he will be for you the satisfaction you need. If you remember one thing from this entire message, there's been a lot and it's just two simple verses that are really right there on the surface. You know what they mean, all right? Remember this, beloved, work out your salvation with fear. And trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, thank you for your grace. And thank you that we get to go to the table of the Lord together to experience such uh, greatness at the supremacy of Christ. And I pray, God, that as we take the Lord's Supper together, we could be overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness that God has saved us and that God will empower us and enable us and work in us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, God, you are sovereign and you are good. And God, any questions that we have about how this all works together, I pray that you answer it by the Holy Spirit teaching us from your word. Now, God, as we delight in these elements to remember Jesus and to feast on him by faith and be nourished by him, we pray that we do it for your glory, for your son. Amen.